here. So, all right, well, let's get into our lesson here, and we're uh, looking at the highlighting differences, differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology. And the word dispensation, of course, is that word that we see uh, it's in the Greek language. It's found several times in our Bible. It's, uh, it's the word oikonomos, or house rules. And just in way of quick, quick review, our key verse has been 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. We're talking about rightly dividing the word of truth. How do you divide scripture? And their churches are divided upon uh, two major fault lines, if you will. Of course, those that believe in covenant theology and those that believe in dispensational theology. I don't want to spend long in review. I want to press forward this morning here, but... Uh, just look at, uh, you've got, uh, you should have your, everybody got a sheet. You got your review sheet, is that right? You had it in the bulletin, everybody have that? Uh, nobody's saying anything otherwise, so I assume you have it. Uh, we look at number two just in re- 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 review, and of course, this is really the whole crux of the matter. Number two should have probably been number one of the major differences between covenant and dispensational theology. That is regarding the scriptures. Covenant theology applies more of an allegorical or mystical interpretation of scriptures, whereas dispensational takes a more literal approach, especially in regards to eschatology, and it's our theme for uh, today. I also want you to know, and um, upon the way of this, uh, there, the covenant theology is also known in many circles as in the, the, the world's intersect as Reformed theology, or Reformation theology from the Re- Reformation, of course. And uh, I gave the illustration this last Sunday. I didn't, uh, in regards to the Reformed theology uh, Christian I met two weeks ago in North Carolina, of course. And uh, uh, he has different worldviews because of his theology, of course. Uh, number four, just a, in way of review, regarding the church. In covenant theology, the birth of the church occurred in the Old Testament. And the church is simply all the redeemed people since Adam. In dispensational theology, the birth of the church was the day of Pentecost. Old Testament saints are not part of the church. They're part of the, the, uh, they're part of the wedding party, but they're, they're the bride of Christ is distinct and separate, and a separate entity. And... Uh, with, re, with regarding church theology also, or rather, uh, covenant theology rather, uh, there's a belief in what's called replacement theology, and we've touched on this. There's many forms of replacement theology, and uh, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, of course. And uh, there's also another name for this that's not used as often, but it's called rebirth theology. And uh, when you study the Reformation, there's many people that believe this, that the church died for... A thousand or twelve hundred years during the period of what we call the Dark Ages, and that the church was rebirthed. And uh, in fact, we celebrated, or people, some people celebrated uh, in 2017, uh, three years ago, of course, the, the rebirth of the church and uh, uh, 500 year birth of, uh, of course, the Protestant Reformation, of course, and uh, Martin Luther. And uh, October 31st, 1517 is a date that uh, some churches, Protestant churches, celebrate. Because the church was reborn, and they looked to Martin Luther, and they looked some looked to John Calvin, to the reformers as reforming and relighting the church. And we don't believe that. I don't believe that because of Matthew chapter sixteen, verse eighteen. Jesus said, "The gates of hell will not prevail against His church." And so we don't believe in any form of rebirth theology or replacement theology that the church is now 
Israel or spiritual Israel, we believe that we're distinct and separate. And so uh, let's move forward here. We got last week here, or two weeks ago, I guess it was, we looked at number seven. We filled in the blank through numbers, uh, yeah, number seven. We looked at the difference between the, regarding the Holy Spirit of God. I believe we got through that one. Um, in the, in covenant theology, the Holy Spirit has always existed and interacted with God's people since the Old Testament. He was in the pillar of fire and the cloud that guided the Jews on their exodus. He did not indwell anyone until Pentecost. And I think we used Psalm 51 in verse number, I'm going off memory, Psalm 51 for sure. I think it's verse 10 where David said, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. In the New Testament, we cannot lose the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible's very clear about that. And Ephesians has two passages, Ephesians 1, and I think it's verse 13, and I think it's 430. It talks about the sealing and indwelling in the, of the Holy Spirit of God, that we cannot lose the Holy Spirit of God. He'll never leave us. John 14, 15, 16, we read about the comforter that will abide with us forever. And so we cannot lose the Holy Spirit, and he comes and dwells in us in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he came and went. And uh, the Spirit of God descended upon Saul, for example, in the Old Testament, but then it left Saul. And so uh, in last little sentence there of number seven, in dispensational theology, the Holy Spirit has always existed, but did not play an active role until Pentecost. And for time's sake, I'm just going, of course, I'm looking at my audience here. We've got a pretty educated audience this, this morning here, and most of you know Acts chapter 2 fairly well. We're, we're, we're uh, of course, the gift of tongues came, of course, and people heard in their own language the word of God. Peter pre- preached, of course, and, and he said, this is what's spoken. We're not drunk with wine, but this is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. And uh, young, young men shall dream dreams, and your old men shall see visions, or vice versa, I guess it is. And, uh, and, uh, and he speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus said, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so we have a difference of uh, uh, belief system in regards to the Holy Spirit in these two schools of theology. But number eight is where we're at today here. And I wanna, we want to spend the whole balance of our time on number eight this morning here. And uh, dispensationalism regarding Christ's first and second coming. This is where there's a big divergence in between the covenant and dispensational theology. And we've said this in several different ways already, but let me just wave introduction. Different paths uh, uh, leads us to different dispensations. We've talked about the tra- different tra- trajectories and talked about the railroad tracks all starting in the same station and just slightly veering off, and your destination is far different. Uh, in covenant theology, in fact, I want to tell you the story of uh, um, Simon J. Mills again in the Haystack 5, just briefly. August 6, 1806 is the date of the Haystack prayer meeting, as it's called, and up in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Many of you have been there, of course, at the, the monument there. It was underneath that haystack in a driving rainstorm that, that Samuel J. Mills, the oldest of the five, he made a postulate. He said, well, a proposition, why don't we go into, why don't we come in ourselves to dedicate ourselves to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? That was so phenomenal, such as I used to make an illustration many times, but for 23-year-old Samuel J. Mills to say that his four younger, younger friends 
Harvey Loomis was one of his uh, friends, and uh, he was one of the four that met on that, that rainstorm. They normally had 8, 10, 11, 12 godly men and would pray at the prayer meetings, but they only had five came that day. And uh, Harvey Loomis, of course, you know where Samuel J. Mills' house, just FYI, Harvey Loomis is three houses away uh, on the same side of the street, the big house that uh, we, we toured that a few years ago. It was up for sale. It's uh, original house at Harvey Loomis. He was a rich kid. Uh, he was a 19-year-old kid, and he was in that prayer meeting underneath that, that, that haystack when Samuel J. Mills made the proposition. Now, these guys were all covenanted in their theology. They'd all been trained by Yale, Harvard, educated preachers, and so forth. And they were all covenanted in their theology in regards to uh, replacement theology regards to uh, and so when Samuel J. Mills made this proposition let's covenant ourselves to go into all the world and preach the gospel of every creature to the dark heathens in Africa and to the, the far east and so forth and Harvey Loomis 19 year old Harvey Loomis protested he said no way we can't do this it's not possible you see they didn't understand something we call the great commission uh, I don't know when that got its name. Brother Tony, I've been trying to research that on and off for years. I don't know when we started to develop the name, the term, the Great Commission, when that evolved in the church. It's, I think it's a fairly new term of a few centuries old. But uh, we think of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 especially as going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Mark 16, but uh, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And we, we believe that all nations, we're Bible literalists, we believe that all nations are, here's the revelation, all nations uh, we believe Galatians, I mean, things that we take for granted. Uh, we could go to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, he hath made one uh, man, I can't, let me, I can't quote the verse all of a sudden. Look at Galatians 3.28. I need to brush up here. Let's go there first to begin with. Let's see what Galatians 3.28 says. I think it's 3.28. I'm going off memory. Somebody get that for it. It'll take me five minutes to get there. Galatians 3, I think it's a, is it 28. Pastor Tony, you would know. Uh, is it 328 I'm looking at or 20? 20, 20, uh, yeah, it is 2028. 20, Somebody read that for us, please. All right, so this is the things so that we take for granted. There wasn't, uh, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ is of. You know, one blood, the blood of Christ, of course, and uh, rich and poor, bond or free, Jew or Gentile. We make up the Church of Christ, every born-again believer in Christ, things that we take for granted. But you've got to understand these guys were reformed in their theology. They, were, they believed in election, and they believed in uh, certain, that certain people were elected, certain people were under the covenant, and other people were not under the covenant. They've been trained this way their whole life. And so the Arabs and the Jews, or some of the Jews, and the Arabs and the Muslims and, uh, and black people, they didn't even know if they had a soul. And this is, this is what, in this 1806 now we're talking about. So Harvey Loomis protested and said, when Samuel J. Mills made the postulate, the proposition, let's go, let's dedicate ourselves to going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Harvey Loomis said, no, it's not possible. We need to have another crusade and maybe it'd take 100 years and wipe out all the non-elect. We need to go to war. We need the soldiers of Christ to rise. We need to go to war and wipe out all these unelect people. And so in little, if you read the, 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 the account, which is well documented of the, that prayer meeting, uh, uh, Sammy J. Mills said, we can do it if we will. And they prayed. Only four of the five prayed. Harvey Loomis would not be a hypocrite. He did not pray. 
because he did not believe that it was possible to go into all the world and to reach the non-elect for Christ. Now, the rest of that story, for the record, Ari Loomis does go on to, he's a slow convert to the brethren, of course, and a slow convert to this idea of evangelization of different races and different tribes of people. And he dies up in Bangor, Maine as a preacher up there at the age of 36, of course. And uh, I believe he died in the pulpit, as a matter of fact, and uh, died preaching. And, uh, but, uh, so he did convert later on. But these two, two different paths... And uh, it's not on your worksheet, but I just wanted to give you this in regards to going forward to number eight here. Covenant theology emphasizes not evangelism as much as it emphasizes purification or godliness. So you call it what you want. And that, uh, or another way of saying it, it sounds extreme, but it's true. Covenant theology does not emphasize evangelization, but extermination. Wipe out the non-elect. And I know that sounds uh, extreme, but it's really not. Uh, my Again, for the third time, my conversation for an hour and a half with uh, a friend of Jonathan Laura's, a 22-year military veteran, 24 years, something like that, in the Marine Corps, been in Iraq, Afghanistan. By his own admission, he's covenant theology. By his own admission, he's a millennialist. And uh, he's waiting at, you know, we know what's happened in our country in the last week and a half, of course. He's waiting for the Civil War. I'm not, he's waiting for to take up arms against all the, 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 the wicked, the, the left, and so forth, the, the divide. That we need to wipe this out, and, be, and I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to look at the three versions of millennialism here in a minute. But he thinks that uh, there's going to have to wipe out all the non-elect. And so his goal is extermination. His goal is, you know, give God praise as one of the elect. But a dispensationalist goal, I was trying to, I, this is before we, this conversation was unfolding, I didn't know who I was talking to. And I said, well, I believe in what's called the rapture. I didn't even know if he knew that term. And found out later he was a Christian, of course. And, uh, and that, that we need to evangelize before Christ comes back in the rapture and then the tribulation period. And then that's when he unveiled that he was an amillennialist and, and believed in covenant theology. So his worldview, think about this now. He goes to a sovereign grace type church, as it's called. He told me he went to a Reformation church. He started in the Southern Baptist church, by the way. His view is uh, we need to purify. We need to, we need to exterminate, really, is what he was saying in a roundabout way. We need to exterminate the, the, uh, the ungodly and so we can usher in Christ. That's his worldview. And so he's got a stockpile of guns and ammo and so forth, and he's waiting for the big... Uh, conflagration to take to take to take off again, and he's a what we might call a prepper, of course. And uh, does he love the Lord? I don't doubt he loves the Lord. I believe he gave clear cut testimony after after the fact that he received Christ as his Savior. I think he's a Christian, but he's his whole worldview started very just slightly, very just off on a little little tangent. And now he's where get get ready for the civil war that's going to happen. And and he may be right, by the way. I we, I don't know in regards to uh, a civil war in our country, but I don't want to get too audacious right now, or salacious, however you want to say it. But uh, So there's two different views in regards to the second coming of Christ. This is where the, the proverbial railroad tracks really begin to divide in, in our thought process, because let's go to our worksheet now. In covenant theology, Christ's first coming was to die for our sins and to establish the church. To the credit of covenant theologians, most of them, or some of them at least, supposedly at least, 
they put a great emphasis on Jesus Christ being the center of all prophecy. Now, to that, I don't disagree with. In fact, uh, let's turn to Revelation 19. I want you to see not everything about covenant theology is, is wrong. Uh, and I've often said, the more, as I began studying this thing, oh, good night, 20, 25, 33 years ago in somewhat some detail, I learned uh, little nuances. I said, I'm a dispensationalist with a tad bit of covenant theology in me. And... Uh, one of, the, one of the things that I appreciate of most covenant theologians, not all, I suppose, but they believe that Jesus is the center of prophecy. Well, they get that from several verses, I'm sure, but one verse would be Revelation 19, verse number 10. And I, that's John, fell at his feet, that's the angel, to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, notice, is the spirit of prophecy. Did you ever notice, just by the way, we see Jesus. How far do we have to go in the Bible to see Jesus? Well, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. It's God, Elohim, it's plural. When we see Jesus in the very first verse of Genesis 1.1, and we see him in the very last verse, I can turn two pages in my Bible, you probably can too, in Revelation 22.21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We see that Jesus is all the way through when he met the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He said, oh, fools and slow of heart, how slow you are to believe all the prophets from the Psalms, Moses, uh, the, 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 the three parts of the, the Old Testament, the writings, the, 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 uh, the history books, and of course the Pentateuch, we see the law, we see, we see Christ all the way through the Bible. And so to that end, back to our worksheet, they put a great emphasis on the fact that Christ died for our sins and ushered in this covenant of grace. Uh, most theologians, this covenant theologians, admit that salvation is not by works, that, that man fails every time, but it's by grace, so that we share that common ground at least. But uh, the church, sentence number two, was the church was made manifest un, under the covenant of grace. It was... Uh, it, was, it came out of the closet under the covenant of grace, of course. And Jesus Christ, of course, he, he died on the cross, but the Old Testament saints saw him, saw, through, saw him through a glass darkly, so to speak. But when Christ died on the cross, the full fruition of the, the divine plan of this covenant of grace was, uh, was, was uh, completed. Jesus said it is finished, of course. And then it says, the church is the kingdom of God. Now, this is where they, they get off base. The key, the key word, the fill-in-blank word is the word kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God. And uh, again, I have to be careful here, but I, we have people that come into our church from time to time, and uh, uh, is it true that Christ is in us? And all God's people said, amen to every child of God. Christ is in us. He, he's, we have the kingdom of God within us. Jesus said that in the gospel. I should have got the verse ready. The kingdom of God is within you. That is true, that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, not denying that, but the kingdom of God, in, in that phrase, the kingdom of God, there's the idea that the kingdom of God is symbolic. It's not literal. It's not tangible. It's not physical. It's eternal. It's in us. Now, this opens up a lot of problems. Uh, let me just give you this, you've run this rabbit trail. 
And this year, as we've seen it more distinct than every, any year in my, my lifetime, in your lifetime as well. As well. Uh, the church invisible, as it's called. You know, the church universal or church invisible, that we can worship God. We don't have to come to church. We can worship God on, by way of the internet, can we? Well, we can. We can worship God in our bedrooms. We can worship God on the lake. We, we, we don't have to be here in physical presence. We say it all the time. The church is not the building, right? You, you and I are the bride of Christ. And that's, that's all true in and of itself. But you have a real family, for example. I'm looking at Tony and Paula right now. They're, they're, that's a real husband with a real wife. Not that, yeah, better Mark Gale, same thing. Go through the list here, of course, I could use you guys. But you're not, you're not invisible. You're not uh, uh, intangible. You're real. You're physical, literal. You went to an altar together and not vicariously, not uh, uh, online, internet. You didn't get married on the internet. You didn't get married. Uh, you, got, you, you, you held hands and you said, I do. It was a physical. Now you say, preacher, where are you going with that? The Bible teaches a physical union of a husband and wife. Uh, one of God's institutions. God also teaches a physical union in a physical, literal, local, visible church. Real, tangible church. And we talk about the seven churches of Asia Minor to be, to be an example. Those are seven literal churches. Not figurative churches. And we can get, get a little bit ahead of ourselves. We talk about uh, sometimes known as extreme dispensationalism. And sometimes dispensationalists will say that we see the, in the seven churches uh, different ages of the church going forward. I don't deny that, but in the context, the church at Ephesus was really in Ephesus, Asia Minor. It really was a real church facility. The church in New Hartford, Connecticut, Hartford Baptist Church is in New Hartford, Connecticut. It's not in Torrington. It's specifically in New Hartford. And uh, it's, it's real, literal, visible. And so this idea of this replacement theology again is that the kingdom of God is, is not real, not literal, not physical, not to come. It's within us. And uh, it's, it's, which is offered spiritually, physically, and invisibly. I left off the point, and I, again, I have to be careful here, but I'm in friendly audience this, this morning here. Even some of our membership, and not the remain to Harvest Baptist Church, this is happening all across America. I don't need to no longer come to the Harvest Baptist Church because of this COVID virus. I'll just watch vicariously online. I'm part of the church. I'll, if I can't watch Harvest Baptist Church online, I'll just watch another church. I'm, I'm part of the bride. Well, you know what? You didn't stop going to the grocery store. Maybe you had somebody go for you, but you, you still eat physically. You still have to go to the grocery store or somebody has to go for you to get your food. You don't have vi- invisible, intangible vicarious internet food. You have real food, and you have to go to a real place to get that. And uh, the idea of, uh, you know, we're substituting the church for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, what's the word I want, uh, vapor for something that doesn't exist. No, we believe that the kingdom of God is a literal coming kingdom. So uh, let me look at the next sentence. Christ has to, had to come in order to establish his messianic kingdom. This is in covenant theology. And uh, Christ is the beginning of the fruition of this kingdom of God. In dispensational theology, Christ initially came to establish the messianic kingdom. 
It is an earthly kingdom which is in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah, the most, probably the most famous Old Testament passage of Scripture I can think of, prophecy, Scripture, in regards to the first and second coming of Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Let's all go there. I can quote it, and most of you can quote it too, but Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> we have a prophecy written about 740 B.C., well, I'm referring to Isaiah 9, 6, of course. Now, we believe the Bible, we, as dispensationalists, we believe the Bible literally. So when it says 740 B.C., Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born. Notice it didn't say will be born, is born. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, by the way. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, what's the fulfillment of that prophecy? When, when, when did that happen? Well, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he was born, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, of course. 740 years later, we believe it literally happened, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, did that happen? Did Christ overthrow Caesar? No, he didn't. And his name shall be called, now, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, verse 7 is an interesting verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. By the way, do we have peace on earth right now? I mean, the angel came and said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But the only peace that we have right now is the peace of Christ that passes understanding. We have the peace of God in our hearts that passes all understanding, uh, what, Philippians 4. But uh, this world doesn't know peace. Governments don't know peace. Uh, but it says, uh, the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It's speaking about a future messianic kingdom come. We know it as the kingdom age or the millennial kingdom. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it. Just like David was a man after God's own heart, and he was the, the, God, the king that God, God chose, and people chose Saul, one day the people are going to choose, they're going to lift up, and they're going to follow the Antichrist, of course, in the coming tribulation period. We're not going to be here for that. But uh, one day Christ is going to come back, and he's going to reign on the throne of David. Uh, many theologians, by the way, dispensationalists believe that David also will reign on that throne as well. David will be a co-throne, David, Davidic throne. David will reign, and then Christ will reign as well. Uh, and... Uh, it says, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of, the house of, the Lord of hosts has, will perform this. Notice it in the future tense. The first part of verse number six has happened. Christ came to the earth and he was born, but the second part has not happened. We see the this prophecy of his first and second coming all in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We see that in a number of other passages as well. And so we believe in a coming literal messianic thousand-year kingdom reign of Christ. And uh, so it is, an, in, back to the worksheet, it is an earthly kingdom which is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so uh, go to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to see where we get this chiliasm, as it's called. It's a word, uh, chilius is someone that, that's the Greek word for a thousand. We get that from... Revelation 20. Now, my friend that I referred to down in North Carolina there, my new acquaintance, this uh, millennialist, he, he would not believe what I'm about ready to read to you. 
in the literal form because he's covenant, he's allegorical in his interpretation of scriptures. In Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, John said, having the key of the bottomless pit and the chain and the great chain in his hand. I believe that bottomless pit is, we don't want to get too far off tangent, but it's talking, of course, about a place called hell, the lake of fire. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, there it is right there, believing a literal, historical, grammatical, interpret, having an interpretation of scriptures that's literal, literal and historical, grammatically correct. I believe that Satan will be bound for, here's Revelation, for a thousand years. And then, uh, and cast him into, verse number three, into the bottomless pit and shut, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And after that he must be loose for a little season. Skip up to verse number 8 for time, time, time's sake, or verse 7 we'll go to. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go and deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them together, the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And we call this battle the, God, the battle of Gog and Magog, of course. This is after the seven-year seven tribulation period. Back to Revelation, or Isaiah 9, 7. And on the increase of his government and kingdom, there shall be no end, the Bible says. We believe this, I believe this is, we could, I don't want to get too far off tangent because there's so, we could really deep into this here about the millennial kingdom. But there will be, Jesus said in Matthew 24, except those days should be shortened, speaking of the tribulation hour, there should no flesh be saved. There's going to be people that get through the tribulation hour and they're going to go into the kingdom that are not saved. And they're going to procreate, they're going to have children. And they're going to have Millions and hundreds of millions of children, and they're going to procreate for a thousand years. We'll be like the angels of heaven, I believe. Uh, we will be of heavenly bodies and so forth. And uh, and uh, but the the church, the the earth will regenerate, repopulate. At the end of that repopulation, there'll be an opportunity for Satan will be loosed from his prison for a season. The Bible says. And shall take the nations once more, and as many as the sands of the sea, it's an analogy, shall rise up against Christ one more time. And they'll be overthrown and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15, of course. And I know that's a lot to chew on real fast. But uh, let's go to our, back to our worksheet. So we believe this thousand years is found four times, I believe. In, uh, in fact, it is found, no, five times in Revelation 20, verse number, I have it underlined in my Bible, circled. Verse number 2, Revelation 22, Revelation 23, Revelation 20, uh, verse number 4, verse 5, and verse 7, verse, verse 6 and 7 all have the phrase, the thousand years. Uh, the Greek word kiliast, of course, it used to be kiliism, uh, but we know it as millennialism today in Latin. So let's go to our second paragraph here and try to press forward in the five or seven minutes that we have. In covenant... Theology, Christ's second coming is to bring final judgment. And now we have two phases of his second coming, and I don't have time to get into real deep detail in regards to 
the, the two phases of his coming, second coming. We have his first, his first phase, of course, that is the rapture. And this is another whole lesson that we'll be studying, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, then the second phase would be at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Revelation 19. But in Christ's second coming is to bring final judgment and to establish a new heaven and a new earth. In dispensational theology, or in dispensational theology, dispensationalists disagree some on the order of what happens with the second coming. Now, I put that in because you need to understand that not all dispensationalists are pre-tribulationalists. This is where we get a little deep here, but we have, let's this, this, this do it real simplistically. The next event on God's prophetic calendar, what could happen at any moment? It could be the catching away, we notice the, what's that word, the rapture. It can happen today, right? Then after the rapture, we have a, some believe an intermediate period of time, I'll leave that open for debate, but we have a, something called a seven-year tribulation period of time. And the first half, of, which is three and a half years, the second half, which is obviously three and a half years, and Christ comes at the end of that seven-year tribulation period of time and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. Most dispensationalists, we share this the majority opinion that we're also not only we're pre-millennialists, but we're pre-dispensationalists, or pre, excuse me, pre-tribulationalists. We believe that Christ is going to come at the, before the rapture or the tribulation hour begins. There are those that are called mid-tribulationalists. I believe the church will go through part of the tribulation period halfway through and then will be raptured out. Very minority opinion. I don't believe that is going to happen. We'll look at this, Lord willing, in more detail in the next couple, three weeks. Then you have post-tribulationalists. Those that think that, very again, a minority, almost opinion that's out of the way now, or not even, I don't know anybody that's a post-tribulationalist in the Christian faith, myself. Then you have a fourth view called the pre-wrath view of Scripture that the church is going to go through three and a half, four years, four and a half years, five years, five and a half years of the tribulation period. And when things get really bad before the real wrath comes, we're going to be raptured out of here. And again, that's a very fading minority opinion. Most of us are, most dispensationalists are pre, not only pre-millennial, but pre-tribulational. And so the fill in the blank word, most believe that the second coming, the rapture, will occur and then the tribulation period followed by a literal, not a physical, or not, excuse me, not a, not a vi- invisible or a uh, mystical, but a literal thousand-year kingdom reign of Christ. All that comes, after that comes the judgment and then we enter into eternal life or our eternal state. So we just, we just only have just a few minutes here. So let me just give you just a precursor to a couple of weeks from now. We'll continue forward. But we have three different millennium views. The first view, of course, is that of pre-millennialism, right in the prefix pre, P-R-E, of course. That's our position. That is Christ returns before his literal thousand-year reign. Christ sets up the millennial kingdom. That's the large majority opinion between, well, that's, that's the uh, total consensus between with premillennials that Christ sets up his own kingdom. He comes to set in his second advent, his second coming. He sets up his kingdom. He does it. Christ paved the way for Christianity. He came and uh, we would all agree that Christianity is 100% Christ and none of, none of us. Brother Tony brings that out in his message in one of his points. 
that uh, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He started it, he'll finish it. And uh, in the millennium, Christ, we're not going to start nothing. We, we can just keep botching up things. We can't even get elections right in our country, let alone uh, getting in the millennial, bringing in the millennial kingdom reign. Uh, you think we're, we're going to bring it in the reign? We're not going to bring in the reign. Christ will bring in the reign, uh, the millennial reign. Then the next prefix, the next second view is that of amillennialism, A, the Greek prefix for no. That's, um, again, my, I call him my friend uh, that I met three weeks ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was, in North Carolina for the fourth time. Uh, Amillennials. That is, the millennium began with Christ's first coming. When Christ came and he, the full fruition of the covenant of grace, he, he, now we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. The, the, the millennial kingdom is really, it's simply allegorical, it's the fill-in-the-blank word. It's a, it's a metaphor, it's, it's a symbolic, it's, it's invisible, it's in our heart. The kingdom of God is, is within us, every child of God. And so you're a millennial. So the idea of a literal thousand-year kingdom reign, that's not going to happen. We're just going to go to heaven. Christ is going to come back in one final judgment, and we're all just going to go to heaven and live happily ever after. Well, we don't see that happening. In fact, I'll give you just another in Revelation 22, 21, we have, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there's no more sea. We see a recreation again, and a reset of the button, a new, a new dispensation. The last dispensation will be that of the millennial kingdom reign. And then we go into heaven for all eternity. Lastly, is post-millennialism. And this was very popular 100 plus years ago, before something called the Great War. We know it as World War I. That, uh, that is that the world will get better. We'll get better and better and better. We're, you can see that happening, right? <laughs> Hardly. You know, we're just going to... It was the development of the social gospel, by the way. That uh, things are just going to get better and we need to be about race and ethnicity and we need to be about uh, social justice and we need to be about uh, uh, taking care of people's needs and feeding the poor and so forth. A lot of covenant theology... And, Theologians are all into this, what's called the social gospel today. That we're just going to make the world better. We're going to be, we're going to be, uh, uh, we're going to, uh, I can't think of the name of the, uh, oh, the Goodwill, the Goodwill store and the Salvation Army. We're just going to help men out with their physical needs and we're going to love them and they're going to become more and more like Christ without a supernatural transformation. We know it as a new birth. And so, uh, the postmillennialism that and the, the crux is that Christ comes back at the end. The, 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 fill, the last fill in the blank word is the church will usher in Christ at the end. That we will make this world so good because we're such good people. And we're so wonderful. And we, uh, that we're going to run the race. We're going to bring in, we're going to usher in Jesus Christ into the, the, uh, into the world. We're going to make things better and better and better and better. No, we're making things bitter and bitter and better. We're losing the battle. Big time in, in as far as uh, if the battle was up to us, but I'm getting ahead and um, I think of to Brother Tony's message on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I'll let him preach it to you folks who weren't here at, at 8 15. But uh, uh, no, Christ is the, he's the one that uh, fights the battle for us, of course, and so forth. We, we get on the train and we stay persistent. I'm going to start preaching your message here. I better be careful here. So, uh, and, uh, but he, he wins the battle for us, of course. So, all right. Well, we already had a. We should just pray if we can.